would you open with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4? It's been a while since we've been in the book of Ephesians. It was before Christmas that we studied the first half of the book. Now, in this new semester, we're going to study the second half of the book. I'm going to read for us from Ephesians chapter 4, the first six verses. Hear now God's word. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray together. Father, the same Father who is over and in and through all, would you be with us this morning and in us and through us as we don't just want to study this word, we want it to be like a mirror, like James says. We want it to be like rain on the earth, like Isaiah says. We want it to be a scalpel and a sword, like Hebrews says. We want it to get into the nitty-gritty of our lives and change us. Change us into the image of your Son. We long for that. We desire that. That's why we're here. That's why we're eager to hear from your word. Would you do that like you promised to do it? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's great to be back in Ephesians. I've missed this book, and it's good to be back here now at the beginning of a new year and a new semester, 2019. You know, typically this would be a great time in the life of the church as we're beginning a new year to kind of roll out the church's vision for 2019, right? This is the vision. These are the actionable items that are going to get us in our vision from point A to point B. This would be a rallying point at the beginning of the year and the beginning of the semester to talk about where God is leading us. But man, it's hard to improve on what we find here in Ephesians 4. It's hard to improve on a church that is really and truly born out of the gospel in chapters 1 through 3 and becomes the church of Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. Now we say in our church that our vision is to be disciple-making disciples in a church-planting church, and that vision is only as strong as the God behind it, and only as strong as the way you and I define the word discipleship. And Paul is going to peel back the veil and show us together what is a disciple. What is a community of disciples together in the church? This is what we pray to make, what we just read in Ephesians chapter 4. Now, when we were talking at the end of last semester, we said that um, Paul organizes Ephesians like he organizes most of his letters, and that is they come to us in two parts in two halves. The first half of most of Paul's letters are what God has done for us, and the second half of most of Paul's letters, including this one, is what God is doing through us. You'll notice a distinct change in what he's talking about, what God has done for us, and now what God is going to do through us. Chapters 1 through 3 was all about the gospel. 
It was all about God who loved us in Christ, who saved us, who has now united us to himself. We heard the details of the gospel in chapters 1 through 3. And now we turn in the second half to chapters 4 through 6 with practical instructions for the church. Okay, now that God has, has saved us, now that he's brought together this ragtag group of sinners, how is he now going to, together with him, unite us in Christ and present us as a bride, Ephesians 6, without spot or wrinkle? So the first half is our calling, which is our salvation, and the second half is our walking, which is our Christian lives. The greatest travesty that a practitioner of this book could do to Ephesians is to kind of skim through chapters 1 through 3. Yes, I've heard this. I get this. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe in him. I trust in him. I really believe I'm born again. Yes, yes, yes. Let's get to the practical part in 4 through 6. What do you want me to do? Paul is not doing that here. He begins chapter 4, verse 1, with the word, therefore. Therefore, church, because of everything I've already said in chapters 1 through 3. In fact, if you need to pause here and go back to chapters 1 through 3 and refresh yourself on the gospel, please do that because it's not going to make any sense what I'm going to say next unless you first understand what I did say in chapters 1 through 3. Then he says this. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, verse 4, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Calling, called, called, calling. Four times in two verses, you and I never graduate from our calling. We never graduate from our conversion. We never graduate from the gospel. We never move on to bigger and brighter things. Paul is wetting anything he says about walking and practical instructions for the church to our calling and the nature of our salvation. We're not moving on. We're building on what Paul has already taught us, what we've already experienced in the gospel. We're learning about lives, walking in our lives, worthy of the gospel to which we have been called. Now, I've shared this with many of you, but I grew up uh, not here outside of Washington, D.C., on the Maryland side of D.C., and I actually went to a pretty rough-and-tumble middle school. It was kind of a place, maybe some of y'all did that as well, you know, you've got drugs, you've got fights. Um, the, the lunchroom was kind of like a prison cafeteria. It's just good to know who's behind you at any given time, right? You kind of hunch over your food and you just kind of look who's there. I actually, in my middle school, got jumped in a bathroom stall. That is not as fun as it sounds. It was (laughs) a miserable experience. It's actually hard to throw a punch in a bathroom stall, But I met five guys who figured that out. And so I got jumped in the stall. So, I mean, this was a rough and tumble school. But we would take field trips. We would bring 
uh, this group of this motley crew on field trips. We were near the capital, so we often went to the capital, and we'd visit some of the sites that were around Washington, D.C. And without fail, every single time the bus pulls up to a new site, and the teacher would stand up and threaten everybody on the bus and say, All right, kids, you're representing our school. Make us proud. I want you to act worthy of the school that you come from. And I'd be sitting there thinking to myself, man, my school is a cesspool of crime and corruption. We're going to fit right in on Capitol Hill. I mean, this is easy. There's nothing I have to change about my walk to make it worthy of the middle school that I'm coming from. So we've, we've got this idea, right, that we represent where we're coming from. And even though our middle schools might not be worthy of a certain kind of walk, Paul is saying in the gospel, Jesus is. The very things that grabbed our attention and our affection about Jesus in the gospel, that first compelled us about him when he converted us, when he forgave us of our sins when he held us in all kindness and all gentleness and tenderness. Those same things that were in our calling become the very same elements that should be front and center in our walking. Our calling becomes our walking. The gospel that converted us becomes the gospel that we now live out in our lives. The inverse is true. If I think that I came to faith on my own, like this was my decision for me about my life and what's best for my situation, and now I'm doing my best to love Jesus the best I can and the best I know how with my circumstances. If that's the gospel I think I came from, then when I show up in this church community, you are for certain going to know who I am. I want the respect that I deserve. I want a seat at the table. I want to do things my way. I reserve the right to criticize. I reserve the right to condemn. I get to passive aggressively withhold affection from you when I'm not getting what I need. If that's where I came from, that's what I'm living. And the most backhanded compliment I could think to give you is, wow, your walk looks like your call. They match exactly, and neither of them looks anything like Jesus. But our passage today is not a rebuke, it's not a confrontation, it's this beautiful picture of what is possible in the body of Christ. It's like Paul became so compelled by the beauty of Jesus in chapters 1 through 3 that he just starts rattling off what a community that surrounds itself around Jesus is going to look like. Look at verses 2 and 3 again. He says, Therefore walk worthy with all humility and gentleness, with patience, Bearing with one another in love, 
eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Christian, wherever this is happening, that's where I want to be. Wherever a, a community is walking like they've been called, and the saints are starting to look like their Savior, that's the place we want to be. That's what we want to experience. That's what we want to draw life in and from a church community that rallies around and looks like the Savior who called her. Let's just briefly walk through this list and see how it's true of Jesus and how it is true of the community that follows Jesus. The first word is humility, which is an interesting word to lead the list because in the first century, humility was not a respected virtue. Like if you lived in Jesus's or Paul's day and you called somebody a humble that would be a slight to them. That would be a diss to that person because that was not a virtue that anybody cared anything about. That's why it's so shocking to see the King of Kings, Jesus, trade his glory for humility and be born as a poor baby boy in Bethlehem, soon to be refugee in the country of Egypt. And then as he grew up, he did ministry in the margins. He worked around nowhere, Nazareth and Galilee, and to the likes of the sick and the poor, the unclean and the prostitute, the tax collector and children. And then at the culmination of his ministry, he came to Jerusalem humble and mounted on a donkey. He spent his last night on earth washing his disciples' feet. He endured the ridicule of the world for the privilege of bearing her sins. That's our Savior. There is nothing about our Master that spells Anything but humility for those who serve and follow their master. This isn't a bait and switch. We weren't led to believe one thing and now we're getting another thing. Everything about our master is dripping with humility. And so a church family that gathers around Jesus will also look like Jesus. Her calling becomes her walking. She begins to put off pride and self-importance and jockeying for position. And a miracle happens in her because for the first time in her life, she starts to think about other people's needs in front of her own needs. And this is a church following her Savior who walks humbly. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. Not only is it marked by humility, but also, number two, gentleness. In fact, Jesus linked humility and gentleness when he was preaching to the crowds. And he said to them in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Remember, church, this is what first drew you to Jesus. It was his gentleness. 
It was his offer for rest for your souls. Gentle people are safe people. Gentle people are restful people. Gentle people are people that you can drop your guard with, that you can confess your sins to, that you can live your life with, that become people who will carry your burdens with you. Gentle people are like their gentle Savior. Number three, patience. Jesus is patient. Jesus, we know from experience, can absorb a world of sin, a world of rebellion, even now in our Christian lives, a world of apathy as we seek to follow him in fits and starts. God is love, and love is patient. Now that Greek word, patient here actually means or could be translated a long temper. Isn't that a great description? We all know what a short temper is, but a patient person is a person with a long temper. How many of you guys are going to watch football today? Anybody going to kind of veg out from three o'clock onwards? Yeah, three of us are going to do that. I don't believe that. You're going to watch this fun experiment where there's a bad call and a grown man who's the head coach is going to come tearing down the sideline and the poor sideline ref who's not allowed to go anywhere else will stand there and you're going to meet a a short temper encountering a long temper, right? You're going to see a, a grown man scream in another man's ear and the other man not do anything about it. This whole idea of the church to begin with, I mean grabbing people. When you begin to hear the stories of the people in this room and where they come from and the baggage they've brought into their relationship with Jesus and the church and the sins that they have been exposed to that now play out in very Christian and subtle ways and the way they've learned to treat people in the world that they then bring into the church and you pull this experiment together and say, I want all 300 of you now to be in close quarters with each other. I want you to worship together and take the Lord's Supper together. I want you to meet in each other's homes and do hospitality with each other. I want you to learn how to do evangelism together and be exposed as failures when you seek to go out and do the mission of God in the world. This is only possible if we have a room full of long tempers. This can't be done with short tempers. This can't be done treating each other as our sins deserve, this has to be something different. This has to be something supernatural. This has to be something that reflects the Savior in such a marvelous way. What if an unbeliever came in our midst and left and said, wow, that is a patient group of people. I've seen them put up with each other. I've seen what they're willing to endure from their neighbor and that guy in life group who can't shut up, and that person who is obnoxious about their pet project in the city, and this person who continues to confess the same thing again and again and again, and I've watched a patient, gentle, humble people receive and love again and again. Which brings us to number four, bearing with one another in love. 
Now remember last semester, we ended with chapter 3, which I hope you read the the end of chapter 3, which led into where we are in chapter 4. We ended on our knees with the Apostle Paul. He's in prison in Rome on his knees asking the church to get on her knees and ask that God would actually open up our hearts so that we could receive God's love. We could enjoy and commune with God in his love, in the height and width and breadth and depth of this love that surpasses any kind of knowledge and understanding. This ain't ain't a love you can read about. This is a love you need to experience. That God loves me and that God likes me. That he wants to be around me, that he has pursued me, that he enjoys me. We're in this project of opening up our hearts. but, But that's an ethereal thing. Like after I get up off my knees, how do I actually know that God has answered that prayer and my heart has expanded and I'm getting more love or experiencing more love now from God than I did before I got on my knees? Well, I think this verse answers that question by saying, in part, do you want to know if God is increasing your capacity to receive his love and his like for you? It's that you will turn around and love another person. If you're genuinely receiving this love, we can't help but turn around and give it away as fast as possible. Now we've said this before, but it comes up in our text again, so it's worth warning ourselves about a particular kind of Christian in our midst. I've done this before, you've done this before, watch out for this kind of person. Beware of the Christian who tells you that he or she, alone before God, has this wonderful, deep, vibrant, beautiful, apocalyptic relationship with Jesus in her personal prayer closet, but the moment she gets around other people, she's biting, she's critical, she's aggressive, she's a gossip. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as a person who is receiving the volume of love that they say that they're receiving And then they turn around and treat other people like trash. Watch out for that person. They don't know what they're talking about in their personal prayer closet. A person who gets love from God gives love to other people. A person who has been born by God's love turns around and bears one another in the same love. That's how you know. That's how you know that God is answering your prayers for love. You turn around and bear other people in love. Well, number five, Paul finishes, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. I think by the time you get to the fifth description, it feels pretty redundant at this point. Like we've already gotten the picture in the first four. If a church community is living in humility and gentleness and patience and bearing each other in love, how could they not also be unified? It's redundant to say that a humble, forgiving people will also work hard for unity. No kidding. How could they not possibly do something like that? 
But this is such a fundamental aspect of the character of God. It can't help but be mentioned at the risk of redundancy. I know we all got it. I know we all understand it. I know that any people who have these first four are going to naturally work themselves out for unity. But you've got to understand who God is in verses 4 through 6. You've got one spirit, one Lord, one God who gives us one hope, one faith, one baptism. And so it follows in verse 4 that he makes us one body. That's seven ones in three verses. If you see anything in the unity of God, you behold God in three persons, one God, blessed Trinity. If you see God in his unity and how he enfolds the church to commune with him, if you behold that, you can't help but be the kind of person who turns around and looks for unity in the church's walking. You're going to meet people in that kind of church who are eager to maintain unity, who are zealous to defend peace, even though it costs them something. The one body that comes from the one God, through our one common faith, is eager, prays for, fights for peace and unity. Church, let this description wash over us. First, as what first attracted us to our Savior in our calling, and then what is becoming possible for us in our walking. Let the children become like their father. Let the saints become like their Savior. May the same God and Father of all make us, Columbia Presbyterian Church, a humble, gentle, patient, loving, unified body in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it almost feels like there's an insurmountable amount of sin and pride and selfishness and anger and lust and slander and gossip between us and the church that's possible in Ephesians chapter 4. But I would have said that in Ephesians 1 through 3. And you came, in spite of this darkness, delivered us and forgave us of our sins, created in yourself one new man, one holy temple, and this is possible in the Spirit. For the children to look like their father, saints like their savior, would you do this in our midst, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. For you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Amen.